Hello, everyone. Welcome to Intersecting Ideas, a podcast dedicated to talking about life and culture and engaging our friends and finding out what's going on in their world, how they're living, and how it impacts society. Well, today's episode is going to just be Wes, Handy, and I. Mr. What's up, folks? Hey. <laughs> so today's episode, we are going to evaluate and talk through our last episode. So if you hadn't had opportunity to listen to the episode on flat earth versus a sphere earth and with Jen White and Aaron Harley, please go back and listen to that because Wes and I are going to go and interact with some of the ideas on there. We're going to tiptoe through several concepts that were brought up. And previous episode, we were playing a very agnostic role. So we didn't have a lot of input. And a lot of people reached out to me and actually said that. The whole idea was to allow Aaron to unpack his perspective because it's not the most prevalent today and allow him enough airtime to do that. But on this episode, Wes and I are going to interact and engage with the thoughts behind what he presented from a sphere perspective. I'm ready, Mike. I'm ready, Mike. And, and, and folks, hey, we're going to come back to this. We'll let, we, we hope to have Aaron and Jen back on, too, as we, we continue this discussion. So, you know, stay yeah, tuned. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that this is also kind of a, a lesson in engaging with ideas with other people that have different views and critiquing the ideas, not this ad hominem kind of attacking the person, but really just looking at the idea that's being presented and critically thinking about it. And I think that where we have to begin this conversation is from a historical perspective, because a lot of the history that was presented it wasn't less than what was presented, but it was much, much more than what, there's much, much more behind the history than what was presented. And we only scratched the surface. So the very first thing I think that we need to probably lay out is just a basic understanding of geocentricity and heliocentricity. And historically, what was presented on the last episode was that at that point in history, that geocentricity is basically where the planets orbit the Earth, and that was taught for a very long time, dating back to 380 BC. That changed during the Copernicus Revolution, and that is what turned into heliocentricity, where the planets orbit around the sun. Now, what happened conversation last time was that got collapsed. So instead of just making the distinction between where Copernicus started and talking about the orbiting of the planets, it got collapsed in saying that everything before that was taught on a flat Earth model, which historically is not 100% accurate. So with that being said, good. Mike, Mike quick, quick question, Mike. So, and this is probably something we need to we kind of hammer out. So when someone hears the word flat Earth, is that the same thing as the geocentric model? No, that would be very distinct. So when we say geocentricity or the geocentric model or Ptolemaic model, when we say those things, don't assume flat earth together. What we need to clarify is we need to assume that that is simply the orbiting of the planets. And this is the part that I think that was left out historically, is that for approximately 2,600 years, we have embraced a sphere model dating back to Pythagoras. So Pythagoras was in 570 BC. He was the first one to kind of step on the scene and, and drop this bomb about, hey, I think we're living on a sphere. So that was where it was kind of codified and it went forward from there. 
Then you see it picked up historically in thinkers like Aristotle, who embraced it. You see it in the writings of Plato. You also see it in the writings of Augustine as well in his commentary on Genesis. <laughs> so right. this was shown throughout history. And these thinkers, Pythagoras starting at 570 BC, and then we go into you know, 380, 380s all the way through you know, Augustine in the 300 after death. So they were teaching this model. But the further development, was, and we did talk about a man named Eratosthenes. Remember that the last episode? Yeah. Yeah, buddy. I like my boy. Hey, my boy. <laughs> Hanging out with him on the weekends. Yeah. That's right, man. I remember me, me and him are probably oh members goodness. the way back. <laughs> only on, only on <laughs> Friday night, so. But, That's so right. This right. guy, right? Eratosthenes. So he came down to measuring the circumference of the earth. And the way he did it was, let me back up. This guy wasn't, he wasn't just like, he was a sharp man. I mean, this, he was the head of the Alexandrian library. You know, uh, right. I, don't you wish we had that information now? Oh my gosh. Oh, sorry. It didn't burn down. <laughs> but uh, so in 240 BC, he got word that he was in Alexandria and the next town, which was 800 kilometers away, was Syene. And he got a report that in Syene, there was no vertical shadow cast on summer solstice. So on June 21st, Alexandria placed a stick in the ground. And in Alexandria, he placed a stick in the ground and he measured the shadow of 7.2 degrees. And in Syrie, there was no shadow. So he did some basic math. He took that 7.2 degrees and he divided by 360 for a circle. Comes out to around 50, right? Then you take 50 and you multiply that by the distance between the two towns. And voila, you got the entire measurement of the entire world, of the globe, which he calculated to be about 40,000 kilometers. Well, he wasn't far off from our modern, our modern day analysis. And then also we see as well, this was also picked up by many Islamic scholars who further these calculations as well. The whole point is that this idea of sphere has been taught for throughout history and the math didn't break. So there was a big emphasis on the math has been broken. When did the math break? So let's begin there, Wes. Did the math break? What do you think? No, no, the math didn't break. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it was mathematics that kept pushing these people to refine uh, their observations, right? It's the same mathematics uh, throughout. Now, we could talk about what happened later and how math advanced after the Copernican Revolution when you get to Newton and all that stuff. Still doesn't break it. It's just an advancement on previous knowledge, right? But, you know, when they're out there trying to make this calculation, like it only works the same, the same logic that, that Eratosthenes was using, right? It's the same logic that's being used later on by Galileo and Copernicus and all those guys. They just have more things to see and to try to kind of like make work than what the ancients were able to see. Yeah, they're right? just standing on the further discoveries or the, should I say prior discoveries just right. kicks the conversation down the line a lot further. You know, they're not starting at square one. Like, I mean, I, I was reading, so Aristotle, right? He's talking about the heavens and he, you know, they basically, when you read Aristotle's work, he argues basically that all the stars are spheres. <laughs> he argues that the sun and the moon are spheres. The earth is a sphere. It, you know, some of it's based on some philosophical ideas of the perfect shape, right? 
and his idea of the unmoved mover and how things, how the celestial bodies move and where movement comes from and things like that. But it's also based on their observation, right? When they're looking at the shadows that the earth is casting upon the moon during eclipses, right? He noticed that no matter where the moon is in the sky, right? The earth casts this round shadow, right? Which gives, you know, this thought that the earth is a sphere, which of course, you know, the idea of the earth is a sphere went back to Pythagoras and these calculations come from it. But wanted to think the big difference and what probably we're going to end up talking about is like Aristotle argues though, that the earth is basically, we talked about the earth, like there's different types of movement, right? It's either, either has movement in and of itself or it has some sort of, you know, if something's either making it move or just being constrained from movement. Right. And I think he, they didn't have a theory of gravity. He noticed that earth like things tend to stick together. Right. And fire like things tend to go the other direction. You can already see, like, and so he's already seeing, like, well, the Earth must be at the center, right? It's being drawn to the center. So we might think of this in terms that we might think of it now in terms of gravity, right? But this fire stuff is like going in the opposite direction, right? And, and it, the theory was that these celestial bodies were made of fire or whatever or stuff like that. You know, there's a lot of stuff going into that. But one thing that he noticed was that the difference between the twinkling of the stars and the non-twinkling of the planets the speed and movement of the planets were different than the stars, right? But the reason why he's able to say the Earth is not moving, but maybe everything's moving around it, is because from his perspective, right, the stars weren't moving in the sky in the same way everything else was. And if we were to observe the sky every day for our life, we'd probably come to the same conclusion, right? Because of the great distance, you can't perceive the movement of distant galaxies and you can't perceive the movement of stars through galaxies because of how far away they are. Right. And so he has, he comes to that conclusion and that gets, of course, gets built into everything that's going on with, with Ptolemy, right. Who is basically cataloging the stars for all their astrological purposes. And so, you know, when you get later on, where now we have telescopes, right. You're able to look and see and, you know, over time be able to catalog movements of these, far distant bodies, which even further away than they ever realized, right? There's reason to adjust some of your theory, but it doesn't, but it's not, it's not different mathematics than what was going on with yeah. these guys before. And, right? you know, I think that's a really good point, Wes, is that you have this whole idea of this Aristotelian logic that was embraced. And that was actually this understanding of geocentricity coming back, you know, argued from Aristotle and the church also embracing that aspect not a flat earth aspect, but geocentricity of the orbiting of the planets was being was being embraced so that when the Copernicus revolution came, there was hesitancy on the church's part because of lack of authority. If we say giving up the Aristotelian model, and we've been teaching it this long, then there's questioning of the church and their other teachings. I think that that also played into it. I mean, that goes into the reason that when uh, Copernicus dropped his writings on heliocentricity, he did it at the end of his life. You know, he didn't do it. He yeah. didn't do it when, after he wrote it. He did it at the end of his life because he's like, mm, I'm, I'm getting old. I don't want to catch the heat for this, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what exactly. <laughs> so, but the sphere model, see, here's an interesting point. If, if you look at this, everyone knows what an atlas is. Well, it, with the GPS, people don't, may not know what an atlas is, but uh, <laughs> a map. <laughs> if you look at Atlas, the statue, that statue was built in 150 AD. He was holding 
a sphere on his shoulders. He was holding the earth on his shoulder. He wasn't holding a disc at all. But, you know, it's just one thing just to point back, you know, it's, it's 150 AD. But as time progressed, so we have, you know, we have the Greeks in Alexandria, we have the Dark Ages, and we move into the Renaissance and this rebirth of the Greek culture and the Greek thought. But then we roll into the scientific revolution. And the scientific revolution began around 1540 to 1730. And this is kind of the big aha moment in science. And a lot of things begin to progress from here. And this is when Copernicus stepped on the scene, not the not a new teaching of flat earth to a sphere, but the orbiting of the planets. So from Copernicus to Newton is that time frame of the scientific revolution. And I think what important thing to point out is this isn't it wasn't a conversation of religion versus science, because many of these men that were engaging in the scientific study, these were devout, some of them were, you know, step under priests, some of them were priests, these men were religious men engaging in scientific study. I think what would be kind of cool to bounce back and forth is what Galileo argued in trying to convince or further the argument for heliocentricity. And he gave four points, and maybe we'll stop at each point and just bounce it back and forth between you and I. So Galileo in 1564 to 1642 was the father of modern modern, uh, physics. And he gave four points when he was arguing about science and the church. And his first point was assume inerrancy, that the scripture was without error in the original form. Don't assume an inerrant interpretation. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, I mean, that's a good place to start right there, right? So, but so the thing is, you could have errant interpretations, mm-hmm. right? The thing is, I mean, you could, you could question everything and, and blow up the whole foundations, but they had no, they had no desire to do that, right? So it's better to assume that inerrancy. Now, of course, since that time, there's been tons and tons of studies, right? We can support that, right? We, you know, it's been, I mean, the Bible is probably the most scrutinized book that's oh, yeah. ever been written. I mean, I mean, you think of every every major university in the world has had a biblical studies department that you know has had various degrees of critical approaches to the to the mm-hmm. Bible, right? And there's and it stood still, right? It's it stood against this. Can you name another book that's faced? Oh, that no, no, no. I mean, there's nothing throughout history that has held that scrutiny. So certainly no religious. Oh, absolutely book. not. I mean, we're talking. I mean, there's certain certain religions you'd be dead if you ever criticized. And when we, when we talk about this in this era of scientific discovery, when we're looking at this, these men are going back to the Bible. They're, they're talking about not, you know, a lot of people think one book, but we're talking a book written, we're talking 66 books written over 1500 years in three continents, in three languages, all with this same theme, the redemption of mankind. That's often overlooked in the conversation, I think, or people may not understand that that's what it's comprised of. And that is his first thing. So you're like you said, they're not trying to blow up their entire foundation. They're trying to help further clarify. And Galileo's second point was nature and scripture cannot disagree. Or we could simply say that all truth is God's truth and that what we know has been revealed to us. Right. Yeah, that's another great point. And I think it fits really good with the first one, right? Because, all right, like, does either view a geocentric or a heliocentric view caused you to question what the scripture teaches maybe on some level but do either of them contradict it 
And I think that that's what he's arguing here, which kind of naturally leads into his next point, is that traditional traditional biblical interpretation should govern unproven science so that the foundation for these gentlemen in their scientific discovery was scriptural authority and when they were arguing from it. But they also would say that proven scientific theory requires reinterpretation or biblical reinterpretation. If you've kind of like you've made a further further study along the way in the scientific realm and it's been proven, testable, verifiable, as we were mentioning the other week, mm-hmm. and it's validated, there's a possibility that he's basically saying, you might be reading the scripture wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, also, so here's a question, Mike. I mean, so are you trying to say that the Bible is not a scientific textbook? I would say that where, where scripture speaks scientifically, it is, it's accurate, but it's not, you know, it's not an auto mechanics Chilton's manual. It doesn't tell you how to tune up your car, you know, <laughs> but where it does speak about science, it's, it's accurate. And I think that during this whole kind of conversation of the Copernicus revolution, it caused these scholars to go back, relook at this text that they maybe at one time interpret it differently. And they had to go, okay, there's probably something we've been looking at through the wrong lens at this, at these works. Yeah, we, we might've brought in Greek cosmology, which didn't necessarily, some of the, I mean, the thing is people like Aristotle, right? I mean, Aquinas liked Aristotle, right? I mean, if Aristotle is going to argue for this unmoved mover, mm-hmm. right? Aquinas is going to talk about the uncaused mm-hmm. cause, right? We, we like that. Yeah, there's no infinite regression of causes. There has to be something that started it all. There's a lot of great sound arguments that everything that exists had to been. But anyway, the whole idea there can't be an infinite regress regression of causes, right? There has to be something that yeah that created everything. The everything anyway, is I'm in not. motion. Is that the one you're referring to? Yeah. Like every since everything is in motion, something had to set it. <laughs> there had to be a first mover. It, you know, his argument right. that uh, there's that we live in a world of cause and effect. Right, there had to have been a first cause. You can't just keep going back forever. It, it's, not, yeah. it's nonsensical. But, <laughs> but we like that, right? And the church likes that. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. And there's and the, and the thing is, if you're if you are Christians growing up in, I guess the remnants of the Roman Empire, right? You 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 basically inherited this Greek and Roman learning. That I mean, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? I mean, there's a sense where you know. I mean, part of understanding that all truth is God's truth is saying, hey, maybe the Greeks and Romans knew something. Oh, yeah. You know, they maybe they, they didn't know everything, but they knew oh, yeah. a lot of stuff. Right. And so, like, but maybe they were wrong about whether the earth was at the center mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. I mean, if we look at, I mean, drive around D.C., you see all the buildings. We see, you see just around our architecture, our teaching, our schooling. We are so kind of enamored with Greek thought, even today, you know, you had the Greek thought, then the dark ages and the rebirth happened. And I mean, the rebirth is a renaissance of looking back on the Greek error and relearning and, you know, this growth out of that error. So you see that this constant looking back, as you point out, Aquinas, you know, he was coming at a time when Muslim scholars were actually interacting with him and they were, Muslim scholars were looking back to Aristotle. And then Aquinas was writing as well, looking back to Aristotle 
to help further his debate amongst them, because there's a lot of elements and overlap, I think, that many monotheists would embrace Aristotle's ideas on many factors, especially as his first mover. Yeah, one of the things, too, is like you, you encounter any great mm-hmm. thinker in, in any tradition, right? They're, they're not fools, right? They may, ha- they may be wrong about things, but they've also put a lot of effort and they and offered a lot of brilliance, right, that you can't just dismiss, right? I mean, you have to work through it. Unless you're another one of those brilliant thinkers who can come up with something else, even, even still you're going to build it off of what came mm-hmm. before you. I'm trying to think of an analogy because I, I, it's easy here to slam what's going on. I like what Galileo, Galileo is saying here, but like it's kind of a big deal to switch from a uh, geocentric to a heliocentric, right? Because how many people had telescopes? How many people were, had access to be able to to see these things, make these observations? And this is why I mean I brought up in this conversation last time about how the, how scientific progress kind of goes there's these kind of paradigm shifts right that for there's this paradigm existing paradigm is there for a long time there may be some diversity opinion underneath them and then there seems to be this like all of a sudden there's this paradigm shift where this new one kind of comes Mm -hmm. in right but there's a long period of time in there where there's like these alternate theories they just don't get the time of day right because they don't fit with the existing paradigm because it's a huge deal to switch paradigms it's like I know, Mike. I watched this YouTube video the other day about the the Parker Solar Probe. Have no, you heard of this thing? I haven't heard of this. What is this? Yeah. So it's this. So NASA sent a satellite to observe the sun directly. Right? They're shooting it. They're basically shooting okay. it straight at the sun, and they're trying to basically to observe uh, solar wind and different things that come up. You know, different radiation that comes off the sun, solar flares, things like that. And the study, like it's never been studied before. What's well, named after this guy? It's like the first NASA. Uh, satellite named after a living person, right? This guy theorized that there was solar wind, right? He based it off of his observations of like comet tails and things like that. He was laughed that people wouldn't give him the time of day because he had such a radical idea that no one would believe, right? Well, then it was then it was proven to be true, and now we're sending a, a the satellite straight at the sun, right? The, you know, named after him, trying to study that solar wind that he theorized was there, right? Based on his observations, so. To come up with a, some sort of paradigm-changing idea, like you're going to face scrutiny when you first come out with it because you're challenging what everybody thinks. Yeah, you know? absolutely are. This might be a, a good transition to this, is a lot of our first episode, there was a lot of poking holes in the sphere model, but little presentation and defense or rational reason why you should embrace a flat Earth model. And I think that when I step back and critique and listen to what was what was being presented, that was my biggest outside of the historical the historical representation was there was no actual argumentation presented in favor of let's go back to this flat earth model. And also within the flat earth conversation, there the widest view has been 2,600 years of a sphere. But even in the 600, 600 BC, there was a conversation that began. There was a debate among some scholars that were going back and forth. I can't recall the name, his name at the moment, but it was, it was basically primary debate used to be whether the earth was eternal or created. That was the main debate. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's a bigger debate than this sphere versus flat earth because, because on one hand, you're saying the world's eternal. That means always existing, no creator. And then on the other hand, you're debating, oh, no, it was created. So you're talking the difference between atheism and some form of agnosticism in the least, 
right? Or some form of creator. So that's a bigger argument on the whole than a flat versus a sphere argument. That's been a less argument. It doesn't even carry as much weight. But the people that were trying to attack the, the argument of the sphere were basically saying, hey, look, it's pagans that are teaching this eternal perspective in a round, round world. And we're not those pagans. We believe it's created and it's flat. And they ultimately regressed into this flat versus round argumentation back and forth. And it's almost like the greater thing got lost in the conversation, you know, right? as opposed to the, the biggest thing. And that's kind of like I was looking at in a more recent history as well, like kind of like, and I think you have some, some, some stuff to bring up on this too, but well, basically in the, in the 1800s, right, there was these couple of folks, they were skeptics, John William Draper, Andrew Dixon White, right, who basically invented this thesis called the conflict thesis. Have you heard of that? Uh, I know he wrote 100 points on why the earth is flat. <laughs> Okay, so you got that in your so you yeah, so we're talking guy, about the yeah. same thing then. Cool. Yeah. But they invent basically invented this idea that these medieval Christians were you know, were preventing intellectual advancement and now here comes the age of reason and enlightenment and you know, Galileo was so you have this battle we even brought it up because it's not so much a battle between these two scientific theories, right? Is you know, between Geocentrum and Heliocentrum, but it's saying that basically the Bible was all about flat earth and all these Christians are flat earthers and so it was this kind of made up theory, right? They kind of made up by skeptics to kind of mock Christians. And then later on, some Christians said, well, yeah, we're, we're not evolutionists, so we must be yeah. flat earthers. Exactly. Or something like it, that. Yeah. William Carpenter, when he wrote that book, it, when he kind of started expounding these views, it was right on the heels of the origins of species by Darwin. So this Darwinian yeah. uh, evolution that we come from a single cell amoeba and ultimately over billions of years, we We've grown into people, you know, as it developed over time. But that was the predominant thing. Yeah, they're saying, hey, we're not like that. We're created and we're on this flat earth. And and all of a sudden you see the same thing happened like that you saw in 600 BC. The greater argument was whether it was like eternal versus created. And then you fast forward to 18... Uh, 1800s, and you see them having this similar argument. They're talking about instead of being created versus evolved, they start talking about flat Earth and a sphere again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like you, yeah, you've you've jumped to the wrong argument, and you've kind of locked yourself out of the main discussion. In the yeah, sense. exactly. I mean, you throw out the main one because you're so fearful of uh, of the Earth being round, you you miss the forest through the trees. Like, man, yeah. you, go ahead. And I was going to say, I mean, that's a, and it's difficult too, man. I mean, like, the, you know, it's not an easy thing to deal with, you know, an idea like Darwinian evolution or even, even to deal with, you know, again, heliocentrism. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're the average Joe in, in the 1500s, right, to be able to wrap your mind around something that's new like that, right? Like, you have to get involved. Like, it takes, and it, you know, it took several centuries for that to really kind of play itself out. You know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, for us, we're just looking back on this. You know, we're able to kind of look at both sides. Like, could you imagine being in the thick of it? We are in the thick of it. You just don't know it, <laughs> Different right? Thing. Okay. So, I mean, I can make, okay. What about exoplanets? What do you think about exoplanets, Mike? Do you think there's life on other planets? Sounds in the like universe? a video game, but uh, exoplanets. <laughs> I mean, Hey, they're, detect they're detecting them by the thousands. They're if detecting these planets. If there's, water, if there's water on other planets, then there's some form of life. 
right? Well, do you know that there's water on every there's water on every body in our solar system? I was made up, I was made to believe the Earth was the only place that had water on it. You know, there's mm-hmm. water on the moon. Yeah, there's water. There's water yeah, on so Mars. Wherever there's water, there's forms of life. Now, is that or could possibly form? Could of possibly life. be. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, if it's a frozen planet, maybe not. But, Who knows? I mean, I wouldn't cast out. I don't. I'm not thinking that there's going to be, you know, Hollywood Mars attacks. <laughs> okay. Well, but it's okay. Let's say, Mike. Okay, I'm going to throw it out there, man. Because let's say, let's say that the universe has X billions of of systems. I don't know how many. I don't know the number. Someone who knows this number can bring it out. And you know, if you think of all the different possibilities of life. Of, of how many of those planets are in the habitable zone, right around mm-hmm. a, around a star, which is a quite a quite mm-hmm. a large figure, which would also probably be in the billions. I, I, again, I don't know the numbers, but right. it's huge numbers, right? And we're not even talking about an infinite universe. Like we're, we can get into that discussion, but I think that's nonsensical. But we can <laughs> <laughs> for all the other reasons we talked about. There's people who try to argue for it. Anyway, so we talk about a finite universe still with billions of systems, billions of planets, possibly billions of habitable planets, mm-hmm. right? Right. What are the the odds that there's not a civilization out there like ours or more advanced than ours on one of those planets? And then how do you think about that as a Christian theologically? So my mind goes back to – you're setting me up here, by the way. But but I'm thinking anthropic – But it's the same type of idea. I feel like this is the same thing you're going through. I'm thinking of the anthropic principle that that the earth Uh is perfectly – we are perfectly set – at, a, at the right distance from the sun, we're not too far away. We're not too close. You know, too further away, we we'd freeze. Up close, we'd burn mm-hmm. up. So everything we know about what it takes to sustain life, as far as breathing and heat and temperatures and vegetation and growth and animals and food, so everything we know about, I'd say scientifically about what it takes to sustain life. I don't think we've discovered something else out there that would match that criteria. Like we haven't like perfectly within the universe to our knowledge. Right. I mean, it'd be really hard pressed for us to discover that from where we, where we are. I think just, just limitations of space and time, but yeah. So fine tuning, you go to the fine tuning Mm -hmm. argument. So I would go to that. Right. And then. Okay. But so you rule out a hand. I'm like, so someone might say, like, they may just argue probabilistically, right? If you just take all the probabilities, that there's some probability out there that some sort of alien civilization exists, mm-hmm. you know, you know. So as you know, would you be violating your understanding of scripture? So to go back to Galileo's points, what would you have to reinterpret if that was if that was found out to be true? Let's say we were somehow able to detect maybe it was a wormhole. You know, or we we come up with a warp engine and we're able to warp space time so we can travel some, you know, X million light years away and we come across this alien civilization. What needs to be reinterpreted from Galileo's perspective? <laughs> from Galileo's like grid that yeah, four for his, four, his points, four points. If something was proven, you know, his four points would simply would say that you need to readjust readjust your understanding of scriptural of scripture because your interpretation is not infallible. The scripture is infallible, but not your interpretation. So you might need to make some tweaks and adjustment along the way. Now, to date, I don't think that there's any writing. I know we're in the realm. Of, we're yeah, in yeah, right we're in theory right now. We're so, way. so the scientifically, it's, it's not discoverable. And you know, when we're talking like, you know, we're pushing in the area of not just flat Earth, but we're talking like hermeneutics and exegesis and and things like that. So 
when you're talking like exegetical interpretation of, of the text, there's no text that's going to argue for it as well. So you have, you know, both sides, I think, that that leave us lacking on that a little bit. Or at least, should I say, other life, meaning like human life, like human intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, whether there's beast oh, yeah. or, I don't know, bacteria, or a couple whatever. bacteria flagellin out there. Viruses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some bacteria you flagellin, you know. <laughs> Aerodicial complexity right there, boy. I mean, that's a good question. That was that was good. You know, I think there's also uh, something that came up about skeptic. Go ahead. No, what go ahead. Is, well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I know you mm-hmm. want to go into this. I think the skepticism is a good point. But I just want to, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, where's the, where, where are people in Copernicus's day when they're hearing this idea of heliocentrism? It's not, I mean, it's maybe it's not as radical a jump as exoplanet life. But would it have felt like that to them? I'm just trying to understand from their perspective. Like, I would say, I would say so. I would say, like, to a degree, you know, it, it might be you press me on on external life and the way I'm viewing it, they may have thought the same way. But they're also the information wasn't as readily available too. You know, that was another factor. Right. So you had the scholars who readily had access to the books and the libraries, and so you had in the, equi- the in the equipment and the yeah, time time you know and, and a lot of these people during you know during this period were agrarian is an agrarian culture you know very much so so these are some of these people are depending on what area obviously but you know you're a fighter you're a warrior you're you're tilling the soil so you're not studying all the time but obviously we produce genius minds that came out of the same era you know, we look back on them. I mean, yeah. you look at look at the works of uh, Galileo. This guy's a genius. Oh my gosh, talk about the ultimate Renaissance man. Yeah. <laughs> He's genius. But yeah, yeah, I think that there there would. I think they could be confronted cognitive dissidents, right? <laughs> Where yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to find a way to be kind of like because today we're encountering people who come who are coming to an idea of flat Earth or. You know, or geocentrism. I mean, if they mean flat Earth, like the disc idea or the dome idea, whatever, I'm not certain what they mean. Can we approach them the same way that you might, like, let's say I was Galileo, I just saw this stuff, and I'm trying to convince people because it fits with everything I've seen. Maybe you haven't seen this yet. Like, how can we? I mean, is, where's grace falling in, in the way we, you know, treating someone's idea or treating somebody? Like with those ideas in a way that, I mean, it'd be very easy to be to laugh someone out the out mm-hmm. the door, right? Well, and I think that's the kind of the important thing, Wes, is like the ability to actually engage people from different perspectives and to be gracious. Like when I started out, I said we're going to look at what Aaron presented, but we want to be gracious in how we anal- how we look at it, and how we evaluate it. Not we're looking at the ideas, and it's not just the person but the ideas as as a whole and lots of people embrace certain ideas and sometimes when we come to topics i think you you pointed out last week that truth is generally come to in a collect community right and in a collection of a whole yeah. and a lot of times i think we have to approach all these topics with a sense of humility because we don't have all the information all the time and there's a lot of times where we read books and I mean, we could read the actual writings of these men and interpret them wrong, interpret their own writings incorrectly. Yeah. I mean, we, you and I were just speaking earlier about author that I high, hold in high esteem and, and his critique of Aristotle was actually incorrect. You know, as I went through Aristotle's work and I realized, wait a minute, 
you know, this, this isn't exactly what I thought it was. So mm. I think it's just, we got to have to kind of have a sense of humility and because, you know, we could be wrong as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Everyone is. right. Yeah. Everyone likes to think they're right, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, the next scientific revolution, I mean, there will likely be another one. I mean, you could probably look at the, you know, Einstein special relativity, general relativity as the, as a revolution beyond, you know, Copernicus and, and, and Newton. Right. But like they just recently, there's kind of a big deal now is they recently just found out that they're the, the common model of particle physics may be wrong. <laughs> and then maybe they, they see it as a positive thing because it may actually lead them to the next, you know, model that a better model than they currently have, you know, but it'd be interesting to see, like, I mean, I'm going to speak as a Christian, None of these models surprise me, you know, and, and I don't think any of them challenge my view of scripture either. I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think the scriptures teach a, a certain cosmology that maybe some people might argue. Somebody may actually argue that, that the, the Christian scriptures, that is, are, you know, present a particular cosmology. But, you know, some of the, some of the best scholars, even looking at Genesis, would, would say, no, it's really not. It's not trying to answer the modern scientific question or even the cosmological question at all. In the sense of what's the cosmos like, as much as who created the cosmos and our relationship to yeah. that creator, you know. And that's that's um, where I would fall, you know, that it, it speaks that it, yeah, it speaks of creation, but it doesn't get in every nuance and detail. You know, I think we we know people like Jen who managed what did she say, sat eight and nine? Is that what she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Landsat Land eight, eight, eight nine. Yeah, right? you know, we know people like Jen. You know, the physicists, the biologists, the people that dig into those areas and you know, learn from them. You were going to bring up skepticism earlier, Mike. Oh, no, that was, a, that was a perfect segue. I think there is in the conversation. Now, we live in an era right now with a very heightened awareness, heightened skepticism, but also conspiracy theories, right? So yeah, I would like to tiptoe into, the, into this a little bit on the conspiracy theories as a whole. What I've obsessed from it and there's been definitely a lot more, I've seen a lot more, especially as coronavirus has hit us, a lot of different ideas about what's really behind it, what's the government doing, this, that, the other. And while I understand a healthy skepticism, if you fill your mind with a massive amount of conspiracy theories, what happens is your mind becomes a well of unsolidified and undocumented and unempirically verified ideas. So you're living and your feet are in the middle of planet in the middle of the air with no foundation at that point because you've embraced so much skepticism. So that's the extreme side that I'm seeing. And I see a lot of this that's been going on now. But the other side is I think there is room for a healthy skepticism, you know? Yeah. And I think healthy skepticism comes down to proper critical evaluation of things. What do you think? No, I mean I, I, I agree with you, Mike. I mean, I think, I mean, and skeptics historically have played their role in being correctives, you know, to, you think of, you know, what we always start dealing with rationalism versus empiricism and along comes. Yeah. <laughs> we can't even know cause from effect and all sorts of crazy. Like, you know, here comes some healthy, you know, you know, some healthy skepticism to kind of be a corrective to where ideas mm -hmm. are going. Right. So, um, and, so and I West. think, yeah, go ahead. Good for for the people who may not know what those ideas, what you you just threw out, those two, two yeah, phrases. yeah. So <laughs> empiricism, <laughs> basically, you know, rationalism. The idea is that you your knowledge is is based off of of, of reason, right? You're reasoning from from deductive mm -hmm. reasoning, 
right? From point A to point B to point C and so on, right? And whereas it's all it's all rational based. Whereas empiricism is basically this idea of knowledge that is coming from which you can observe. And it's more an inductive model. You're gathering more and more facts through observation to come up mm-hmm. to what's true, yep. right? So, I mean, that's, a, that's probably a very a low-level explanation of that. You know, it's probably better. You know, one of my favorite, I love Descartes. I love Descartes, man. You know, considered the father of rationalism, right? And he starts off, his his whole idea is, skeptic. he starts with skepticism, right? He's like, man, what if, what if everything, what if the, the whole existence is controlled by a uh, malevolent being, right? What if we're like we're in the matrix and there's some evil being controlling all of our reality? How can I know anything, right? Of course, it leads them to think, well, I can at least know that I exist because I'm thinking, right? I think, therefore, I am, right? So he takes this very skeptical approach to everything, which leads to some basis of of knowledge, right? I can at least know that I exist, right? And then, then he builds this whole mm-hmm. system from there. And we can debate the merits <laughs> of all that stuff. But I think, like, there has to be, like, you can go too far. I think you, know, you think of the idea of the hermeneutic of suspicion, that you start with suspicion for everything. I think you can go too far. I think at some point you have to have something that you – you shouldn't have to reinvent the foundations every time. I shouldn't have to be Descartes every time I come to anything, right? But I think there is a – you know, whenever you do hear something new and different, I mean, maybe even some things you hear that ain't so new. Right, you should always be thinking. Okay, is this really true? Right, Mike, I want to bring up something else. But so I was reading some uh, Francis Bacon earlier, <laughs> right? And he talks about these these idols, right? These idols of the mind. You know right? what? We said so and many wanna... names this episode. People are going to be right. They're going to be it's Googling. And they're going to write that. What are they? Who are these guys? We're, we're name, name dropping all these man. guys in name history. Dropping. But go ahead. Sorry, these are big ideas though. But go ahead. Yeah, but one of but one of this thing is he talks about there's even this idol of truth, right? Is that you can he's really talking about confirmation bias, right? Is that you tend to believe things to be true that you think to be true already, mm-hmm. right? And so I think so skepticism, a healthy dose of skepticism can help help us to avoid just looking for things to confirm what we all already believe, can help us to kind of humble ourselves to realize that we don't know everything, mm-hmm. right? That there could be actually prevailing ideas out there that are wrong. Absolutely, yeah. Right? You know? And then, but the thing is, we don't want to end up making man the measure of himself and and just starting from, and then letting ourselves be the main measure of what's true or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think that, I think that was really good because if, if humanity is a measure of all things, right, then we are moving into the area, areas like, politics as well. When you look at Hobbes, Hobbes Leviathan, Hobbes would say that humanities, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, drop he's, <laughs> drop so, but drop. Hobbes social contract theory, you know, he's talking about like in a social yeah. contract theory, like we are, are the measure in essence of all things that life is nasty, bruised and short, and you should submit yourselves to the sovereign because if not, you're going to be in this perpetual state of war, and nobody wants to be in this perpetual state of war. So he basically starts out with the fear of man and then bookends it with fear and says, hey, come this way and sign the social contract. And then when you sign the social contract, then morality is put into play. So that's what happens when humanity is the center of all things. We're making our own rules, but we know, and historically, just look back, because what people said 50 years ago is not what they would say today. I mean, we're talking, go back, go back 100 years. Oh my gosh, 
the way people are treated and the way we define humanity. Like who is a human, human being or not? I mean, there's, there's vast right. difference. So if there is not something, if we are left on an island by ourselves and we are only left to our own thinking, this limited knowledge, and there is not something external to us, not a creator, uh, to set a foundation, then we're at ground zero. We're at the, we're at the meaninglessness of a life as a whole. But tell me, I think it's skepticism, a certain level of skepticism to make us not trust mm -hmm. just ourselves, right? Let me jump back in there. Yeah, I had to hit a rabbit trail. Um, Thanks for pulling me back. But when we talk about skepticism, so you had brought up a really good point on this idea of skepticism is that a lot of times people have a belief and they constantly reinforce that belief with other ideas surrounding it. And it becomes this think tank and you only reinforce what you know, as opposed to actually questioning it. And a healthy skepticism, I think, questions what you believe. And when you question what you believe, you, you can then begin to articulate why you believe what you believe. Because if you don't ever question it, then you can't answer the whys. And I think that it all ties together. So a healthy skepticism doesn't rebuild everything from ground up, but it also prevents kind of like a map in your mind to sift and weigh new ideas that you come across. So that just because somebody says, hey, this is the latest thing and everybody in politics or everybody in society is embracing this or whatever it might be, it doesn't mean that you have to swallow it down. Yeah, which I think is interesting, you know, even thinking about because, again, I look forward to talking, having Jen, Jen back on the program, too, because you think of, you know, confirmation biases. I've got this thesis. Let me go mm -hmm. prove it. Right. And I think when you think of it from a scientific perspective, I have this thesis. I need to go disprove it because I know if I can't, if I can disprove it, then that's wrong, right? You do whatever you can to, to falsify it, right? So that it's easy to come up with a, a passing test for something, is, you know. But to have that thoroughness to find that failing test. But even coming back to this idea of conspiracy theories, like we talked about it a little bit, and when we talked about meme culture and clickbait culture, right? I think our our current you know, the information age has only increased the number of these things, right? Because uh, there's there's fewer central sources of truth, right? Or trustworthy mm -hmm. sources of truth, right? Even, even even the major publications have had scandals, you know, people fake, you know, right now you can come up with you know, artificial intelligence is almost to the point where we can, I mean, they already are having articles being submitted to journals by AI, right? just seeing how they get through and they do get through and they get found out and they get ah, like what we did to you. Haha. <laughs> right. But you're getting to, But I don't want to just slam people who fall into conspiracy theories because I think they thrive in a, in an era where public trust is at a low point. Yep. Right. When you don't, when you don't have sources or traditions or you know, ideas or people, right. That you can trust, but you, you can see around you, the opposite, a lot of reason to mistrust, right? You can be, you can be tempted towards those ideas. I think there's warrant. There's like a level of warranted skepticism that can, that can be a healthy, like I mentioned, you know, healthy skepticism versus in just embracing a myriad of, of, of ideas, constantly chasing them down. You know, that's going to lead you to erroneous beliefs all the way around, you know, with no foundation, but yeah. Having a healthy skepticism, I think, is is good. And you're right, especially in today's culture. We could take this a couple ways. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Any, any more on it? Yeah, we could probably chase chase it down. You're right in a hundred different ways. I mean, 
but I think what I got the main point though is that the healthy skepticism helps helps protect us, right? And giving in to that, not having other any other type of sure foundation can, you know, either you know we can do all sorts of things, confirmation bias, or or the opposite of that, we just disregard things that don't confirm mm-hmm. with our beliefs. But like, I mean, the reason why it took so long for even the heliocentric view. Even though it was, it, you know, within within decades and centuries, like you you start it's advancing, right? Until it finally kind of there is kind of this revolution that flips. Is that you do have tradition? You know, tradition has a role, right? It has mm-hmm. a protecting role, right? It it takes ideas and okay, these ideas don't conform with our tradition, right? So one one of the two are wrong, right? I mean, it could both be wrong, right? So and that and it should be very, it should be very hard to kind of overthrow tradition. It shouldn't be an easy thing to do. Right, because tradition it it's not yeah, all I mean, bad. It's developed over time, right? and yeah, There's lots bo- of thought goes into it before before something gets established as a tradition. We don't have that today. Tradition is anathema today. I mean, well, at least in theory, right? I mean, there are traditions. Like, you, if you're going to go and study physics and science, you're going to have to conform with the prevailing models. Those models are scientific tradition that you have to conform to mm-hmm. and work within, right? And so. But you would never, no one recalls it no. tradition, right? <laughs> you never call, but it is tradition. It's a form of tradition. And so to say, you know, in, in a post enlightenment era, right? Tradition is seen as the ignorance of the past, right? It's, it's not something that is being challenged or thought through. But, and so because of that, like our, the traditions that get passed down, even religiously, like, you know, you know, I think even in a, it can be looked at as, you know, that's how they used to do it. You know, this is, Maybe this is some legalistic way or some old way of doing something like we're reinventing even, you know, religion or reinventing culture. Right. It just it it's still just it breeds conspiracy theory. Right. Because you don't have at least one thing that you can look back to and say, OK, hold on. We at least need to look and compare it to this. Yeah. You know, well, I, I mean, I think, like you said, tradition is good and it needs it, it needs to be questioned. But it also shouldn't be passively just passed over, you know. I think it's probably yeah. the, kind of the main. Yeah, critical, you have to do a critical yeah. analysis. I think it ties into critical thinking in general. But you know, I wanted to talk about before we. I had a couple of people contact me after that podcast, and one of my friends directly contacted me, and he said, "If the theory when we talked about the the ship uh, out to sea, and uh-huh. that it disappears, the base begins to sink below the horizon, and." You actually sent me a picture because you live in Virginia Beach. So you went out and took a picture <laughs> right. of one of the carriers and you could clearly see the carrier was dipping below the horizon in the picture. But last the argument was made that if you pull out a telescope, every time you pull it out, it just pops back into view. But that wasn't the case. And you just, I witnessed that. My friend yeah. also, he had mentioned that he said, well, if, if the world was flat, if you had a large enough telescope, from that theory, you could stand on top of Mount Everest and basically see the see China. You could see U.S. You could see the entire globe with a big enough telescope. I think you, I think you can see China from Everest. Because at the anyway, but that's only at the, the corner. Well, the corner. big enough telescope. China, China, <laughs> so anyway, maybe the U.S. China, China, China <laughs> India, and Pakistan. You can't see the U.S. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but what right. what's also what I was thinking about when he told me that was, I was thinking about Jen works on you know Landsat eight and nine. And I had asked her, I said, can you zoom out and catch the circumference Earth? And she said, well, that's one thing with the telescope is they are actually not a wide angle lens. They are made more to go deep and, you know, that they're made for picking up detail more than they are wide spectrum. And that's kind of, you know, what they focus on. 
on the satellites. And she said, it's very similar to standing a foot away from a horse and trying to take the whole picture of the horse. You know, you'd have to go scan across it. <laughs> but at the same time, because with those satellites, she can't see the entire world at the same time, no matter what direction. Remember, she said it's repeating right. as the rotation of the world of the earth revolves before she can see those spots again on the earth. But I just, yeah. I, just from a flat earth perspective, it doesn't line up with even, even her satellites or even, even the boats dipping below the horizon. Yeah. And I think that and it even goes back, like I me, mean, Barb earlier, like where the math's broken, right? Uh, the math's, uh, the math, I keep saying math, you get us what the British say, <laughs> but the math, <laughs> Like and that's but that that was even some of the arguments like they like when they looked at the shadow of the Earth on the lunar during the lunar eclipses right and they you know that it fits within a circle right and it fits within this this sphere you know the all the mass that that have come from that time period like all the Ptolemaic period right they're assuming things are going around on the other side of the planet right not you know what I'm saying like there's no math out there saying well, we have a, a drum or we have a disc, right? So that's the problem. Like that was one of the claims was that all this math was derived in this, on this understanding of the world as a disc maybe, or within this, you know, let Aaron describe that more within like within a bubble or uh, yeah, like a a, what they call a yeah. dome, a dome, right? There's no math supporting that. Like when you look at any of those ancient civilizations that had anything like that idea, like people try to argue maybe the Babylonian or the ancient Near Eastern view was this kind of dome, the pillars of the earth upholding this firmament that was, you know, solid and unmoving, right? You know, there's there's not math out there supporting that stuff or making any of that stuff happen, right? All the math is built upon this idea of shapes and spheres. And that's where, you know, you look at all the Greek mass, you know, when, when it comes to polygons, when it comes to, you know, all the algebra and trigonometry and everything that comes out of that it only works within the spherical model. I mean, that's that's what engages their mind to calculate these things and work this stuff out, right? You, you don't see that same type of analysis deriving out of, in fact, all those ancient theories died out, yeah. right? If they even were those, even if those well, theories I mean, were the theories. When we started out talking about uh, Eratosthenes, when he measured the circumference of yeah. the Earth, I mean, that basic formula, 7.2 degrees divided by 360 for the circle. You know, that's division, you come yeah. to 50, 50 times the distance between two cities, 800, you know, and the next thing you know, he comes to yeah. 40,000 for the circumference of the earth. I mean, there's nothing in that math that's any different than what you and I would do today. He was almost right on for what we say today. Right. That's a repeatable, uh, that's actually a repeatable experiment. I mean, it would take a... <laughs> it is, I mean, just repeatable. as repeatable as... <laughs> You taking a picture of, of the boat dipping below the horizon. You know, that's repeatable as yeah. well. Just like Jen taking pictures yeah. of the Earth from a satellite every day. Yeah. So I think that we walked through a lot of history. Talked about a lot of name dropping, a lot of figures, a lot of history. So hopefully people realize that the conversation going through to history. So each of those people we mentioned were yeah. new thinkers that further developed along the way. I probably should have mentioned that at the beginning. Well, we drop some dates in there uh, every yeah. now and then. But, and, and again, and I think it's too, and we're not trying to like, I mean, none of this is against anybody specifically. You know, this is not like, we're not trying to like get get one over anybody. No. We want to have Aaron and Absolutely. Jen back to talk yeah. more. I, I think it's, but the thing is important. We got, 
our ideas out there a little bit, especially since we've had this study in the history of ideas. Like we we've been able to track this through authors over time yeah, for a long so, period of time. Yeah, that's an important point that you bring up is that both of us are history of ideas guys, and that's we've read the firsthand account of these big ideas throughout history and how they've impacted the world. And I think that we were agnostic on the last round, and I think you know that's what we talked in the background. So you know we kind of felt like I wanted them to get their conversation out, but we lost our voice in the conversation. But it was good to have them talk because that further helped us develop a good conversation between you and I on this one. And I really look forward to Jen have some more time to talk to. You know, as she wouldn't feel well last time, but also it was us three dudes talking a lot. So yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more from her. She to have a lot to offer that we we didn't we didn't just we didn't allow or didn't get out. Yeah, so I, and you know, I think uh, also on the last episode, I think because there's no consensus on the flat Earth area. Part of that was to be a conversation to help better understand Aaron's view on it because there's not that consensus. Yeah. And that makes it hard to even begin a conversation because I feel like we only scratched the surface on some of those ideas. But man, this right. is a, it's been a good one, Wes. Definitely, yeah, definitely a like fun it. one. It's definitely fun. a fun one. So I'm glad we had an opportunity to do this. Like I said, I had a lot of feedback from people were saying, hey, you guys didn't say a whole lot. And then someone specifically said, I want to hear this guy, Wesley, talk more. <laughs> I want to hear Wes talk. I wish he would talk more. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's all good. I th- hopefully, I, yeah, hopefully I gave some did. of that today. You definitely did. Well, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off for this podcast. So this is Mike Parks and Wes Handy at Intersecting Ideas, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Until we drop another one, have a great week. Peace.